If you would go ahead and turn with me now to the book of Romans in chapter 8. The book of Romans in chapter 8. Call it the Great Eight. And what a great chapter it is. As Merle was praying earlier, was thinking about the history of Christianity. And I wonder if there are many chapters in the Bible that have been used as greatly by God as this particular chapter of Scripture. Yes, the Bible is a book with many, many precious passages of Scripture, but this is certainly one that rises high among them all. This morning, I simply want to provide us an introduction to this chapter. Um, The first way I want to do that is I want us to read the chapter. Uh, It's unusual for us to read that much in a sermon, but uh, right now this could change, but Lord willing, um, I have planned 42 messages on Romans chapter 8. And um, so we're going to be, you know, typically each Sunday looking at one verse, you know, two verses, one verse, two verses. But it, it is easy to lose the forest for the trees. And so this morning I want us to see the big picture. I want us to see what the chapter itself is about. And so we're going to read the chapter. After we do that, I want to remind you of the reasons that Paul wrote this letter to the church in Rome. I want to remind you of what Paul has been saying before we get to Romans chapter 8. And then third and finally, I simply want to address you concerning what is the theme of the chapter as a whole. What what is the big picture? What is the overarching truth that God is communicating to us in Romans chapter 8? And so again, we're going to read the chapter. We're going to remind ourselves about this letter as a whole. And then we're going to look specifically at the theme of chapter 8. So let's begin by reading Romans 8. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. 
If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who was at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation 
or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It's a forest with many trees. And these are wonderful trees. <laughs> We're going to enjoy taking each tree and looking at each verse and seeing what it has to say for us. But having read the chapter in its entirety, let's remember the reasons that this letter was written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, to answer that question, we need to go back to the discussion we had when we first started studying this letter to the Romans. We must begin by asking, what kind of book is the book of Romans? And we see that it is an epistle, it is a letter written by the Apostle Paul while he's living in the city of Corinth, right? Corinth is in Greece. So Paul's in Greece, he's ministering to Christians in Greece, and he's writing this letter to Christians in Rome, the capital of the vast Roman Empire that is in power at this time. But this this particular epistle, this letter, is more than just a letter. It's a very unusual letter, and we know that because, for one, it is exceptionally long. Most letters in the ancient world contain no more than a couple hundred words. And even in our own day, of course, people don't write letters much anymore, but even in our own day, letters tend to be short. A handwritten letter might be a couple of pages, but but usually not a whole lot more than that. In the ancient world, there were some men who used letters as an opportunity to put in writing their particular teaching their particular philosophy. And these would sometimes be letters as long as a thousand words or more. And so we have Cicero. Maybe you've heard of Cicero. Cicero wrote a letter that was 2,500 words long. Seneca wrote a letter that was 4,100 words long. But still, Paul's letter is unique. 7,000 words long. That was exceptionally, exceptionally long for a letter in the ancient world. And so that hints to us that there's something more going on here than just a letter from here from him to the church in Rome. In fact, when we look a bit more closely, we find that the book of Romans is a thorough presentation of the message that Paul believed and that Paul taught. Some have referred to Romans as the Magna Carta of the Christian faith. The document, more than any other in the pages of Scripture, that lays out the good news of Jesus Christ. Romans is not simply a letter, it is a treatise. And so why did Paul send this treatise letter to the church in Rome? Three reasons, I think. First, it seems likely that Paul did this 
because his desire was that these Christians in Rome would partner with him in his missionary endeavor. Paul has Spain in view. He wants to take the gospel to Spain and he envisioned a future relationship with the church in Rome in which they would play an important role in helping him get the gospel to places north and west of Rome where it had not yet come. But Paul had never visited the church in Rome. He didn't know most of the people there. They were strangers to him. They only knew him by his reputation as an apostle. And therefore, it was important that he explained to them the message that he believed and that he preached so that they as a church could evaluate that message and decide whether to conscientiously agree to partner with him or not to partner with him. So that's one reason that he wrote this letter the way he did. Second, Paul appears to give this thorough explanation of the Christian message in order to strengthen and to encourage the Christians in Rome. Paul does not correct the church in Rome the way he does the Corinthians or the Galatians. But there is little doubt that there was some tension, particularly between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians, that made up the church in Rome. And so Paul's letter goes a long way to address those issues. Moreover, there is nothing more helpful to Christians than to be reminded of the truths and the glories of the gospel. Paul says in Romans 1.11 that he, he longs to see the Roman Christians so that he can strengthen them. And I think he was certainly praying that this letter would be used by God to strengthen them. Finally, some have suggested that Paul wrote the book of Romans because he had some awareness that the end of his life was probably not too far off. And so he desired to put in writing the gospel that he believed and preached before he died. The letters of the apostles were commonly copied and passed around among the early churches. These letters were typically read in the worship services. And therefore, while Paul was writing to the Roman church in particular, he was probably very aware that this letter of his would be copied and sent forth to churches all across the world. He served the church of Christ as a whole by giving us in one letter the message of the gospel, the message of Christianity. In fact, whereas some of Paul's other letters seem to be uh, taken up with issues particular to that church, with issues particular to that body. This particular letter seems to be focused on issues not just within the church of Rome, but within the church of Christ as a whole. There's no doubt that, that the Roman Christians were in Paul's mind as he wrote, but I don't think that the church in Rome was the only church in his mind as he wrote. And amazingly, we can say with absolute confidence that it was God's intention that this letter be written, not only for Christians in the first century, but for Christians in the 21st century. That God was behind the writing of this letter so that there would be a day when it would be opened up in the pulpit of Mount Hermon Missionary Baptist Church and in pulpits and homes and Sunday school classes and places all across the world. This letter was written for your benefit. This letter was written for my benefit. This letter was written for our benefit together. And it is God who ordained that you have an English translation of it so that we could study this book and hear 
from God. Now, we have studied chapters 1 through 7 of this letter. We saw, in fact, you might want to just, I'm going to just give you a quick summary of chapters 1 through 7, so you might want to be ready to just kind of peek at each chapter as we, we walk through it in, in a summary. We, we saw the thesis statement of the Apostle Paul in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1. That's the thesis statement of the whole letter. 116, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So this whole letter, Paul says, is about the gospel. It's about the good news of what God has done in Jesus Christ to save sinners. This letter unpacks for us why we need the gospel. In fact, it's the first place he goes, beginning in verse 18 of chapter 1, continuing all the way into chapter 3, Paul lays out a devastating attack upon the notion that man is inherently good. Just the opposite, he says. There is none good. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul teaches in these chapters that the wrath of God hangs like a dark cloud above all humanity. And unless a way of salvation is found, God will justly condemn every one of us. He will condemn us not because He is a wicked God, but because He is a good God and we are vile. Natural man, Paul says, suppresses the truth about God and what He requires of us. Natural man tramples the glory of God, dishonors His name, but in the end, the honor of God will be vindicated and we will be condemned. But not all humanity will be condemned. For even though God would be just and right to cast every person into hell for their sins, God has chosen to save sinners through Jesus Christ. And so this really begins in Romans 3, verse 21. We have that paragraph which I argued is the Mount Everest of the Bible. That paragraph where more than anywhere else in all of Scripture, the Gospel is clearly laid out. And in those verses, Romans 3, 21 through 26, we saw that Christ came to earth to die as a substitute for sinners. He bore the wrath of God that sinners deserve in their place on the cross. Even when God saves sinners, He is too just to merely sweep sins under the carpet. No, even the sins of those He would make His children must be paid for. The glory of God must be upheld. And therefore, even as He saves His people, He must punish their sins. And He punishes the sins of His people by punishing His own Son as their representative in their place. And in this way, God was able to be both just and the justifier 
of those who would believe on Christ. This is what we saw beginning in Romans 3.21 and Paul opens up this glorious doctrine of the gospel of salvation by faith alone going all the way through Romans chapter 5. And the heart of these passages is the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Martin Luther said it's the doctrine on which the church stands or falls. It is the very heart of the gospel. Lose this and you've lost everything. We have no hope. There is no real Christianity. We might as well leave if there is no justification by faith alone. And so Paul goes to great lengths to prove that this message is not some new thing that he came up with. It is the very same gospel established in the pages of the Old Testament. Way back in Genesis, Paul says, this is Romans chapter 4, way back in Genesis, the father of the Jews himself, Abraham himself, was made right with God. Abraham was declared righteous in the sight of God. Abraham was given peace with God. How, Paul says, Abraham was a sinner. How was Abraham made right with God? How was the saving work of Jesus on the cross thousands of years later applied? To Abraham. And Paul's answer is Genesis 15, 6, which he quotes in Romans 4, verse 3. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Salvation by faith. And Paul's burden in this section is to make absolutely clear that there is nothing we can do to earn God's salvation. We cannot make peace with God ourselves. We cannot accomplish the forgiveness of our own sins. We cannot make ourselves perfect in God's sight. Paul says that no good works of ours can ever merit anything before God. As Isaiah says, even our best works are tainted with sin and are as filthy rags before the sight of a holy God. And so Paul emphasizes this again and again and again. It is not by works. It is not by works. It is not by works. It is by faith alone that we are saved. What is salvation? It is coming to Jesus in humble faith with empty hands, crying out that we have no hope but Him, casting ourselves completely upon His mercy. If Jesus cannot save us, we cannot be saved. He is our only hope. But, Paul says, all who come to Jesus will most certainly be saved. Indeed, the very moment we come to Him in faith, the very moment we come to Jesus in desperation and cast ourselves upon Him, everything that He accomplished in His perfect life, in His substitutionary death, in His glorious resurrection, the moment we believe, it's applied to our account before God. So that you get Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, in Adam, all humanity fell. But just as Adam represented all humanity in the garden, Jesus represented every person who would ever believe in Him in His perfect life and death. And therefore, the righteousness that Jesus accomplished over 33 years of perfect obedience to His Father, obedience even to the point of suffering and dying on a cross, 
that perfection is applied to our account when we believe. The Christian is dressed in the righteousness of Christ. The straight A's of Jesus are put on our report card. When God looks at us, though we still continue to sin in this life from time to time, He still sees every sin paid for. He sees every sin forgiven because of the cross. And He sees us wearing the perfect righteousness of Christ. Jesus loves us for Christ's sake. And this is how He designed it from the beginning. Now in Romans 6... Paul began to address a great objection to this gospel. And the objection was this. Paul, if you go around preaching that all anybody has to do is embrace Jesus in faith, and at that moment all his sins are forgiven, won't people take that as a license to sin? Won't people begin to sin and sin and sin some more since they can say, I'm a Christian, all my sins are forgiven. It doesn't matter how I live. I'll just go out and live in sin. And Paul's answer to that objection is chapter 6 and chapter 7. And his answer is that true Christians cannot continue to live in sin. His answer is that once Christians come to Christ, sin becomes their mortal enemy. That Jesus died to set sinners free from sin. You cannot embrace Christ and embrace sin. True believers have experienced a resurrection just as real as their Savior. True believers have risen from the dead spiritually. And they now walk in newness of life. This is true of every believer And if we're a Christian, this is how we are to think of ourselves. We are to consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This means that once a person has come to know Jesus, the enmity and the hostility that we used to have towards God is now redirected towards sin. We rebel against sin. We fight sin. In Romans 6, We learn that Christians fight sin offensively by submitting ourselves to the will of God, surrendering the members of this body to His service. And we learn that we fight sin defensively through self-control, through self-denial, by refusing to give in to those fleshly desires that would plague us in this life and lead us away from our Savior. The gospel does not promote sin. The gospel creates people who hate sin and fight against it. That's the message of Romans 6. And yet, in this life, the Christian will still sin. There will be times when the Christian falls and falls again. Christians will never make peace with sin. You cannot make peace with sin and be a Christian. But even Christians who hate sin and are fighting against sin will still sin. And therefore, as Paul makes clear in Romans 7, we are now free from the condemnation of the law. It has no power to demand any longer that we be punished. The punishment has already taken place for our sins. In fact... One great purpose of the law, of God's moral commandments, is to show us our need for salvation by grace. Paul says the law is not where you need to turn for salvation. 
The law shows you your need for salvation, but the law cannot save you. Obeying the Ten Commandments will not get you to heaven. Indeed, because of your corrupt heart, the law only makes your sins worse. We're like the child who, when mom says, don't do that, immediately their heart wants to do it. That's the way we are, Paul says. So he says, stop trusting in the law. Look to the gospel of grace. The law itself is good. Now, Paul is not anti-law, right? This is Romans 7, midway through the chapter. The law is good. Don't, don't, Don't say bad things about the law. The reason the law won't get you to heaven is because of you, not the law. If you had a pure heart, you could live the law. You would be obedient. You would be perfect. You would be righteous in the eyes of God. The reason that the law doesn't work is that you're messed up, not the law. So so don't go bad on the law. But rather understand that it is your flesh that is messed up. And what that means is this. The Christian life in this world is always going to be a struggle. Because you are a renewed soul, dear Christian. You have been born again. You have a heart that now loves God. But guess what? There is still something of the old nature in you as well. And you will struggle against your flesh your whole life. There is still something very earthy in us. And therefore, we get to Romans 7, verse 24. And we have Paul cry out, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. For there is a day coming, the day we die or the day that Jesus comes back, whichever is first, when the Christian's battle against sin and flesh will end and the days of eternal peace and rest will begin and the fight will be over. These bodies will be laid down. They will later be resurrected anew, glorified, with no tendency towards wickedness. And that will be a great day. But Paul says, until that day comes, Christians on this earth are in the condition that he describes in the very last verse of chapter 7. The very last verse of chapter 7. So then, I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And so as we've seen in our study of Romans... As we've studied these seven chapters of the past several years, this book is about the gospel and the saving power of the gospel and what it looks like in a Christian's life. So now as we come to Romans 8, what is the message of this chapter? How does this fit in to what Paul has been saying? I'm simply going to make three observations about chapter 8. First, notice the beginning and the end. Of chapter 8. You know, when I was in high school, they told us that if, you know, you're going to kind of cheat and not read the whole paper, at least read the beginning and the end, and you'll get the main idea. But what is the beginning and the ending of Romans 8 about? Well, the chapter begins with no condemnation, and it ends with no separation. It begins with, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, and it ends with, you can never be separated from the love of God in Christ Jesus your Lord. No condemnation is the gospel. Through Jesus, the wrath of God that we deserve has been fully propitiated, absorbed, uh, 
appeased, the wrath of God has been appeased in Jesus Christ on the cross so that there's no more wrath of God for Christians, no more hell to pay, no more righteous requirement of the law that must be met, no more condemnation for Christians. And so that's the starting point. And when that is the starting point, Paul begins to just lay out blessing after blessing after blessing of what it means to be a person of whom this is true. What does it mean to be a person who has believed the gospel and lives in the gospel? He gives blessing after blessing, and the final one is the most blessed one of all, that we will never ever be separated from the loving, caring, providing, protecting presence of our holy God. God is ours and we are His forever through Christ. And so one way to summarize Romans 8 is to say that it is all about the blessings that are ours through the gospel. A second observation, however, is that this chapter is all about the Holy Spirit and what it means to live in the Spirit. In all of our study of Romans 1 through 7 and these glorious gospel truths that we've seen, Paul has referenced the Holy Spirit four times. Four times in all of Romans 1 through 7 do we have an explicit reference to the Holy Spirit. Four times. Now in Romans 8, 20 times. Paul now takes his attention to the Holy Spirit. And he says that when you are a Christian living in the gospel, you will live a spiritual life. The Spirit will dwell in you. The Spirit will be at work in you. And he's going to talk to us about what it means to live according to the Spirit. Everything before this has been about justification. Everything before this has been about Christians being declared right in the sight of God through Jesus Christ. Even chapter 6 and 7, even though chapter 6 and 7 certainly talked about aspects of sanctification and living the Christian life, even they were really answers to objections about Paul's teaching on justification. He was really all this time trying to make sure we get, you are saved by believing on Jesus Christ alone, and when you believe, you are made right with God. But now, especially after verse 4, more fully than before, Paul begins to say, now here's what the Christian life looks like when you have believed. The focus turns to sanctification. What does it mean to live life as someone who has been saved from the condemnation of God? What does it mean to live as a person in whom the Spirit of God dwells? It is those who have the Spirit who believe and are justified, but the Spirit doesn't stop working the moment He gives you faith. No. From the moment the Spirit gives you faith, He is working and He is working and He is making your heart His home and He is doing mighty things inside of you. And so to give you a very basic outline of Romans chapter 8, we could say that verses 1 through 4 are basically a reminder to us of his gospel, the doctrine of justification, and that the rest of the chapter is about what it means to live in the Spirit as a person who has believed that gospel. Verses 1 through 4, now let me remind you what I was talking about before I answered those objections in chapters 6 and 7. Let me remind you of the gospel that I was teaching in Romans 3, 4, and 5 because before we, we took this sidetrack. But now I'm going to remind you, and now that this is true and it is glorious and God has condemned sin in the flesh for you, now that this is true of you, here's what you need to know about your life 
it is a blessed life. Oh, you're going to suffer. But the sufferings will not compare to the glory that will be revealed to you. And as you suffer, the Spirit will be with you. He will help you to pray as you ought to pray. And, and He's going to be working everything for your good. And you are assured that the end will be okay because of the great golden chain of salvation. And your God will never forsake you. That leads us to our third observation about this chapter. And it is striking to me. There is not a single imperative in the chapter. That is, there's not a single command in all of Romans chapter 8. If your English translation has one, they messed up. In the Greek, there's not a single command in Romans chapter 8. These verses are pure, unvarnished doctrine. These verses are declarations of truth concerning who a Christian really is. Some of these truths are alarming. Paul makes very clear in verse 13 that a Christian is someone who puts death, who puts sin to death and practices self-denial. And he says, if you're not doing that, you're not a Christian. He gives some pretty strong warnings there. If you're not putting sin to death, then let the sirens go off in your conscience. You don't know Christ. But most of the verses in this chapter are glorious declarations about the blessedness of being one in whom the Spirit of God dwells. We are those adopted by God. We are fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. We are those who suffer in this life, but whose sufferings cannot compare with the future ahead of us. We are those for whom God is working all for our good. We are those who will never be separated from the love of God and Jesus Christ. What is Romans 8 about? Romans 8 is about true Christianity. What does it really mean to be a Christian? Dear church, is this not something that we need We live in a culture, especially in our community, where so many claim to be Christians and so few have any idea of what it really means to live as a person saved by the blood of Christ and dwelt by the Spirit of God. Real Christianity is powerful. It is not of this world. And if we as a church get a hold of the realities taught in this chapter, If we dare to believe the things that God says about us in this chapter, then the devil better watch out. Because it will change us, and through us it will change this world around us. And so as we pray about this upcoming study, pray big prayers. Don't pray little prayers. Pray big prayers. God has used this this chapter and these verses to do magnificent things in the history of His church. Might he be pleased to do something like that again? And I pray that that is what he will do.